This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month we're celebrating Rocktober. I'm sharing stories from the musical Vault, Tales of Rock and Roll Mayhem. This time I'll tell you all about the life of Bob Marley, a man who went from singing R&B harmonies in Trenchtown, Kingston, Jamaica, to becoming a pioneer of reggae music, bringing his own blend of reggae, rock, and ska music to a global audience. His personal philosophy was one of peace, unity, and love, but as a popular figure in Jamaica, was thrust into the country's political strife that would lead to the cusp of civil war. Things became so dangerous for Marley in Jamaica that on December 3, 1976, he became a target of assassins. This is the story of the assassination attempt on Bob Marley. Nesta Robert Marley was born on February 6, 1945, in a rural village called Nine Miles, located in St. Anne Parish, Jamaica. His mother, Sadella Malcolm, was 18 years old when her son was born. His father, Norval Sinclair Marley, was a white Jamaican who worked for the colonial government overseeing construction projects. 59-year-old Marley, called the captain by the locals, began an affair with 17-year-old Sadella. Sadella's family could be traced back to the 18th century, when they were brought to the island as slaves from Ghana. Her family was well-known and respected in Nine Miles, so when young Sadella became pregnant, her family pressured them to marry. They did so in June of 1944, but Marley left the island the next day, telling his pregnant wife that he had to find a less strenuous job due to his health. After that, Sadella rarely saw her husband. He died of a heart attack when their son was just 10 years old, at the age of 70. Sadella gave her son the name Nesta, which means wise messenger. Later, his name would be incorrectly listed as Robert Nesta, as the government clerk felt Nesta sounded more like a female name. He would be called Nesta by his family, but Robert, Bob Marley, would become his official name at that time. One of Bob's best friends in grade school was Neville Bunny O'Reilly Livingston. Bob and Bunny both loved music and began playing together from the time they were pre-teens on improvised instruments. Bob made guitars out of tin and wire and began teaching himself to play. When he was about 12 years old, his mother and Bunny's father began a relationship. The whole family moved to Kingston, Jamaica, settling in the neighborhood of Trenchtown. While Trenchtown was a neighborhood where poverty was rampant, it became famous for the large number of musical talent that emerged from its projects and shantytowns. Trenchtown became known as the Motown of Jamaica, with many talented rhythm and blues artists being discovered there. But it was also the birthplace of ska, rocksteady, and reggae music. Young Bob Marley could not have found a better place for musical inspiration, as well as to launch his career in music. Joe Higgs, already a successful vocalist, took Bob under his wing to develop his singing skills. Bob and Bunny formed a vocal harmony group with other locals Peter Tosh, Beverly Kelso, Cherry Smith, and Junior Braithwaite. By 1963, they were playing together under the name The Teenagers. They later changed the name to The Wailing Rude Boys, then The Wailing Wailers, and finally to simply The Wailers. A local record producer named Cox and Dodd gave the group their first big break 
by producing their first single, Simmer Down. The song became a number one hit in Jamaica when Bob was just 18 years old. The group recorded several more songs together over the next couple of years, but by 1966, they had become a trio with only Bob, Bunny, and Peter Tosh remaining. Although the Whaler songs were popular in Jamaica, they didn't see much financial profit from their music. By this time, Bob's mother had given birth to a daughter she named Pearl. She and Toddy, Bunny's father, were having problems, and Sadella thought her best chance at a better life was to move to the United States, where other members of her family had emigrated, settling in Wilmington, Delaware. She left Bob and Pearl in the care of her sister, Enid, promising her son it would only be a few months before she was settled and could send for him. However, it was only three years later, after his mother remarried to an American named Edward Booker, that she would return for him. After his mother left Jamaica, Bob, in effect, became homeless. His mother had left him with his aunt, but Toddy had moved back into the house, moving his new girlfriend in with him as well. Bob wasn't comfortable with the situation, and it was clear his stepfather didn't want him there, so he left. For a time, Bob bounced around, staying mostly with friends. During this time, Bob met a girl, Alvarita, or Rita Anderson. She grew up singing in church, and as a teen, formed a girl singing group called The Solettes. She knew of the Whalers from their songs that played on the radio, and often saw the trio walking together through Trenchtown. She finally screwed up her courage to talk to them, as she was interested in how they were able to have their songs recorded. Peter Tosh told Bob that Rita was a nice girl, so they introduced her to their music producer, Cox and Dodd. The Solettes began singing backup for some of his artists. Rita would later say that Bob hardly talked to her, and she thought he didn't like her, but later discovered that he was just shy. One day, Bunny told Rita that Bob was in love with her. She was shocked. She had a bit of a crush on Peter Tosh, who was always the most fun and outgoing of the group. Rita found Bob more serious, but also very caring. Rita had given birth to a baby at the age of 16, and after Bob discovered that she was raising the child without the father's help, began bringing her baby formula and powdered milk when he had a few dollars. Bob and Rita began a romantic relationship. But when Bob's mother returned to take him to the United States, he didn't think he could leave Rita. But he was still living in poverty, even though the Whalers were a popular music group in Jamaica. He decided to go to the U.S. temporarily to earn some money. But first, he asked Rita to marry him. The couple was wed on February 10, 1966, four days after Bob Marley's 21st birthday. Two days later, he left for Delaware. He took a job as a janitor in a hotel, but missed his wife terribly. In August, Rita flew to the U.S. to be with her husband. He had only managed to gather around $700, but Rita's presence reminded him how much he missed Jamaica, so they returned together two months later. Back in Kingston, Bob decided he would focus on his music. He, Bunny, and Peter got the band back together and now signed to work with producer Lee Perry. One of Perry's most successful artists was pop singer Johnny Nash. The Whalers' song, Stir It Up, became a hit single for Nash. The band began focusing on their new reggae style of music, releasing their studio album, Soul Rebel, with most songs written by Marley and Peter Tosh. They added two more members to the band, bassist Aston Family Man Barrett, who was called Fams, and his brother Carlton Carly Barrett, who played drums. 
Bob had been raised in the Catholic faith, but after his mother left for the United States, he became interested in the Rastafari movement, also known as Rastafarianism, a religion that began in Jamaica during the 1930s after the coronation of Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie. Black political leader Marcus Garvey prophesied that a black king would be crowned who would be the new messiah. After Emperor Selassie came into power, Rastafarians believed he was the messiah that would redeem blacks from their white suppressors and reunite them with their homeland, Africa. Rastafari beliefs include clean eating, living naturally, abstaining from artificial foods, most meats, and alcohol. Smoking cannabis is believed to be a spiritual act, sanctioned by the Bible, and used to clean the body and mind and bring one to God or Jah. Growing the hair into dreadlocks is also a symbol of the religion, and Marley began to grow his hair out in the late 1960s. Reggae music carried the message of the Rastafari ordeals of Afro-liberation. Bob Marley and the Whalers album Soul Rebel was one of the first popular albums to bring the sound and message to a wider audience. The Whalers' influence would grow when, in 1972, they signed a recording contract with Island Records' Chris Blackwell. Their first full album to be released outside of Jamaica was titled Catch a Fire. It reached number 171 on the Billboard 200 and was critically acclaimed. Today, it is listed as number 126 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Upon the album's release, the band toured the United States and Britain, where they opened for both Bruce Springsteen and Sly and the Family Stone. In 1973, their album Burnin' was released. The single I Shot the Sheriff became a hit and was covered by Eric Clapton the following year and went to number one in the U.S. Blackwell turned over his home in Kingston, located at 56 Hope Road, to Bob Marley to use as his residence and recording studio. 56 Hope Road would become a gathering place for musicians as well as community members and fans while Bob Marley lived there. In 1974, both Bunny Livingston, now called Bunny Whaler, and Peter Tosh left the band to pursue solo careers. Bob Marley also went solo, but continued to record under the name Bob Marley and the Whalers. The Barrett brothers, Carly and Fams, were still his backing band, and other musicians were added. Junior Marvin and L. Anderson on guitar, Tyrone Downey and Earl Lindo on keyboards, and Elvin Seco Patterson on percussion. He also added a backup vocal group called the I-3s, consisting of Judy Mowat, Marsha Griffiths, and Marley's wife, Rita. In 1975, the album Natty Dread was released, and the song No Woman, No Cry shot up the charts, making Bob Marley an international sensation. By this time, Bob and Rita Marley had four children together. Rita's daughter Sharon, who Bob had adopted, Sadella, born in 1967, David Nesta, called Ziggy, born in 1968, and Stephen, born in 1972. While Bob and Rita would have no other biological children together, in total, Bob Marley would father a dozen children. Some of these children, products of affairs he would have outside of his marriage, would also come to live with Bob and Rita. Rita would also have a child with another man, who Bob would also adopt. It's a little bit confusing, so I'll break down all the Marley children at the end of the episode. But while Bob Marley became a successful reggae superstar worldwide, it was his popularity in Jamaica that would thrust him unwillingly into the country's political scene. 
Jamaica was experiencing a time of great political upheaval, division, and violence during the late 1960s and 1970s that Jamaicans refer to as the Troubles. While Marley, through his words and music, advocated for peace and unity, he would find himself used as a pawn by rival political parties, and as a result, his life would be endangered. Jamaica had been a British colony since the 17th century, but began slowly gaining its independence after the Great Depression of the 1930s. Political and economic reforms were enacted, and a two-party political system emerged with the creation of the Jamaican Labor Party, or JLP, and the People's National Party, or PNP. The country had only been fully independent since 1962. Jamaica saw a period of economic growth under the conservative JLP party during its first 10 years of independence. But the urban poor felt they were being left behind without equal opportunities enjoyed by other citizens. They lived in government housing projects like Trenchtown that were rife with gangs and violence, and they wanted a change. They voted in Michael Manley as prime minister in 1972. Manley and the socialist-leaning PNP party wanted to create a more egalitarian society. Manley ushered in social reforms, including a higher minimum wage, more and better housing for the working poor, legislation for women's equality, and an increase in educational spending. Manley also worked to build ties with communist Russia and Cuba. The JLP party, led by Edward Siaga, was strongly opposed to this. They viewed communism as a major threat to their conservative and pro-capitalist ideals. Rivalry between the two parties became intense in the late 1960s, and violence between the party's supporters increased significantly. Bob Marley was becoming a well-known and popular figure in the country in the lead-up to the 1972 election. He and Rita were supporters of Michael Manley, as they agreed with his ideals of equality and empowerment for all citizens. Marley's song Revolution, released in 1974, was interpreted by many as an endorsement of Michael Manley and the PNP. Other songs that pointed out the inequality of life in Jamaica were Them Bellyful But We Hungry and Rebel Music, Three O'Clock Roadblock. However, Marley would say that he was not for either political party. He pointed out that his mother was black and his father white and told an interviewer, Me don't be on nobody's side, only on God's side. However, the poorer citizens of Jamaica identified with Marley's songs that reflected their own stories of oppression and the desire for a world better than the one they had been born into. Manley won the 1972 election, and many credited Bob Marley for the PNP's victory. In the run-up to the 1976 election, sides were now declared between citizens either for Manley's re-election or to place Siaga and the JLP back into power. Within cities like Kingston, neighborhood lines were drawn between supporters for either side. Tribal wars broke out, with neighborhoods being patrolled by gang leaders, or dons, who were financed by one political party or the other. The politicians needed the muscle the gangsters could provide to get them the votes they needed, and the gang leaders were using the politicians for protection from the police. It was reported that they were also being supplied money and guns. The conflicts in the streets turned deadly after firearms seemed to proliferate overnight. Neighbors fought each other for control of the neighborhoods. The economy was in trouble, resources were scarce, and this led to even more hostility. In the middle of this growing civil war, 
Bob Marley's home at 56 Hope Road became a neutral zone. Marley kept his home open to all who wanted to come listen to music, play soccer, or needed help. He encouraged those in need to come and eat a meal or just have a safe place away from the violence. He knew what it was like to be on the streets and hungry and generously gave back to his community. So when he saw neighbors hurting and even killing one another, he wanted to do something to unite the people and end the violence. He proposed a free concert to bring everyone together in a spirit of peace. When the rival political parties heard about Marley's proposal, they both wanted him to align with them and sought his endorsement. But Marley said he wanted to keep the event neutral and rejected Manley's offer to use the lawn of the Jamaica House, the Prime Minister's residence, for the concert. But needing the government's approval to hold a large event, the band agreed that the show would be billed as a joint event between the Whalers and the Jamaican government's cultural office. The free concert, called Smile Jamaica, was scheduled for December 5th, which happens to be my birthday, and held at National Heroes Park in Kingston. When the concert was first proposed, the date for the upcoming election was not imminent. Within days of the event being announced, Prime Minister Manley moved the election up to coincide with the concert. Because of this, the perception was that Marley had taken the side of the PNP and endorsed Manley's re-election, the exact opposite of what he was trying to accomplish. He was furious and angrily told his lawyer and friend Diane Jobson that he was being used to draw a crowd for, quote, dem politics. These politics would place Bob Marley in extreme danger. Two days before the concert, on December 3, 1976, Bob Marley and the Whalers were rehearsing at 56 Hope Road. In the studio with Bob was Fams, his bass player, Fams' brother Carly on drums, singers Judy Mowat and Bob's wife Rita were also present, as well as Bob's friend and neighbor Nancy Burke, who was watching the rehearsal. Marley's cook Gilly was cutting up fresh fruit in a small galley kitchen that had recently been built in the rear of the studio. The blender whirred away as he made fresh juice for the musicians. Marley's producer, Chris Blackwell, had been on his way to the rehearsal when he stopped off at Lee Perry's studio to listen to some new tracks. The engineer was still mixing the tracks, and Blackwell was delayed getting to Hope Road. Neville Garrick, the record label's art director, was also late to the rehearsal as he was stopped by police while on his way there and arrested for possessing weed. Neville lived in a little house in the Hope Road compound. Diane Jobson arrived that evening to attend the rehearsal, bringing her friend Bob some grapefruit and some marijuana from his favorite grower. But as she entered the studio, for some reason out of the blue, she began feeling very nauseous. She handed the items to Bob and said she was going out to get some air. She walked down to Neville's cottage where some of the children were playing in the yard. She sat down to watch them for a while. Judy Mowat, one of Marley's backup singers, was also feeling unwell. She'd had a bad dream the night before that was still bothering her. In her dream, she'd seen a rooster and three chickens. Someone shot at the rooster, and a bullet hit one of the chickens. She could see the chicken's intestines coming out from its side. After she awoke, she had a premonition that the rooster was Bob, and the three chickens represented herself and his two other backup singers. When Judy arrived at Hope Road, she told Rita and the third singer, Marcia, about the dream. 
It scared Marcia enough to decide to leave the rehearsal early to go home. But Rita and Judy stayed. Unknown to the women, Marley also had a premonition through a dream the previous night. I had some weird dream last night, he told Neville earlier that day. I couldn't make out if it were gunfire or firecrackers, but it sounded like I'm in a war. The band had run through most of the songs by around 9 p.m., and Marley called for a break. Bams and Carly were going to continue rehearsing the instrumentals. Marley asked Neville, who had just arrived, to drive Judy home. Judy lived in Bulls Bay, a couple hours away. Neville wasn't too happy about this request, as he was waiting for some weed to be delivered from a special grower that he'd been looking forward to all day. He was afraid that by the time he returned, all the best bud would be gone. Marley, sensing this, joked with Neville, saying, Neville, you go on like you love herb more than the rest of we. Don't worry, we go on hold some for you. As a consolation, he handed Neville the keys to his brand new BMW. He hadn't allowed anyone else to drive his new car yet, so this would be a treat for his friend. Marley had chosen his new car because the initials, BMW, suggested his band's name, Bob Marley and the Whalers. At the same time, Rita headed to her own car to leave. Bob's friend, Nancy Burke, was asked to move her car that was in the driveway behind Bob and Rita's car. She headed out a few minutes before Rita took her leave. As she walked back to the studio, one of the children saw her and insisted she come out to the yard where Diane Jobson was still visiting with the children. So instead of heading back into the house, Nancy followed the little girl to Neville's cottage. Neville and Judy had already driven out of the compound's gate and down the road. Rita Marley was just driving her car through the driveway's gatepost when she slowed down to let another car by that was driving into the compound. Just as it passed, she screamed and hit the brakes, feeling a hot pain across the top of her head. As it drove by, someone from inside the car shot at her through her back window. The car then sped up to the house. Inside the studio, several things happened simultaneously. Marley had just begun to walk into the short hallway that led to the kitchen galley. He had the grapefruit Diane had given him in his hands and was peeling it. Gilly was still blending juices. They heard a voice yell out, Give me a juice, and looked up to see Don Taylor, Marley's manager, walking towards the kitchen. Within seconds, three gunmen appeared behind Taylor. They had rushed into the room from both directions. They began firing their weapons. One had a gun in each hand and was shooting both at the same time. The gun blasts were deafening. Bob froze and in a split second felt himself being pushed to the ground. Don Taylor, who was standing between Marley and the gunman, pushed him down even as he was being struck himself by bullets. Carly Barrett had been sitting on his drum stool as bullets began flying. Some hit the stool and toppled him to the floor. He fell at just the right time as the next bullets hit the wall where his head had been milliseconds before. Bams tried to run, but was delayed for a second when he got caught in the cords under the drum kit. He and Carly scrambled into the bathroom, shutting the door and dropping into the metal bathtub they hoped might shield them from the bullets. Gilly ran out of the kitchen and through the yard, vaulting himself over a wall into safety, but not before recognizing one of the gunmen. I knew one of them, he'd later say but would never identify the man by name, afraid of retaliation. Yards away, in the small guest house, Nancy Burke and Diane Jobson heard the volley of gunfire and froze, not knowing whether to stay put or run. Their minds raced. Had Bob been killed? Was everyone dead? 
Suddenly, they heard shouting. It was Siko, the band's percussionist. It's Yaga men, he yelled. Dem come for kill Bob. Diane Jobson ran to the house, while Nancy Burke remained with the children and called the police and an ambulance. As Diane walked into the house, she saw the grapefruit she'd given Bob minutes earlier, halfway peeled, lying in a pool of blood. She called out to her friend and heard Marley respond. Is all right, Diane, he called weakly. Me still here. Miraculously, Bob had not been gravely wounded. It was almost certain he'd been the main target of the gunman and had been saved only by Don Taylor's position in front of him and Taylor's instinct to push his friend out of the line of fire. Bob had turned sideways as the bullet came for him, and instead of piercing his heart, it had grazed him across the chest and lodged in his left arm. Doctors told him that surgery to remove the bullet might affect his hand movements, and he was worried it would limit his ability to play guitar. He decided against surgery, and the bullet remained lodged in his arm. Rita had not been seriously wounded either. She had been grazed by a bullet in the scalp and had passed out for a moment from the pain before she called out for help. Judy Mowat and Neville Garrick believed had they not left just minutes earlier, the car they were riding in would have been targeted by the shooters since it was Bob Marley's vehicle. Judy believed her prophetic dream had served as a warning, as she'd been on edge all afternoon and eager to leave quickly. Don Taylor had been shot five times, the most serious of which was a bullet to his spine. He suffered massive blood loss before arriving at the hospital. His vital signs were almost non-existent, and initially the emergency room doctor thought he was dead. When he was stabilized enough to be transported, he was sent by helicopter to Miami where he underwent surgery to have the bullet removed from his spine. He had been critically injured, but would survive. Marley and everyone present that day would consider it God's divine hand that had saved Bob and everyone else from 56 assassins' bullets. Bob Marley became a target of assassins, most believed, because he was considered a threat to the JLP. At first, shaken up by the attempt on his life, Marley quickly became more angry than scared. He was so angry that he refused to call off the free concert, and it was held as scheduled two days after he was shot. Almost 90,000 people attended. The entire band showed up to play, save for Pham's family man Barrett, who was too traumatized to attend. Marley had agreed to play just one song, but ended up playing for 90 minutes instead. He started the set with the song War and ended with So Ja Say. The final notes of the song were sung by Bob Marley alone with no instrumental accompaniment. In the middle of his set, Marley began a spiritual dance twirling around the stage. His movements almost seemed to mimic his response at being fired upon by his would-be assassins. At one point, he rolled up the sleeve of his shirt to show his wound to the audience, announcing, Bang, bang, I'm okay. The audience applauded wildly, roaring its approval. He told them that when he agreed to play the concert, he was told there would be no politics involved. I just wanted to play for the love of the people, he said. The day after the concert, Bob Marley left his home in Jamaica and went into a self-imposed exile in London. He would not return for almost two years.
Bob Marley had escaped death, but the Civil War continued to spill the blood of Jamaicans. When asked to comment about the violence back home, Marley, now living in London, said, When you have political violence, and I see the youth fighting against the youth for the politicians, you know, I really feel sick. Marley knew it was not safe for him to return to Jamaica. Of course, the politicians disavowed any responsibility for the attempt on Marley's life. They pointed out that gang violence was simply a danger of ghetto life. It was theorized that one of Marley's friends owed gambling debts, which Marley had been covering for him, but he had missed a payment so became a target. This made no sense, because if Marley was dead, how would they get the rest of the money allegedly owed to them? Guards had been assigned to keep Marley safe at the Hope Road compound in the days leading up to the Smile Jamaica concert. They had been posted at the gate every night until the night of the shooting. The gate had also been left open. While many believe that Siaga's men were responsible for the shooting, and Marley's percussionists had even identified them as such right after the incident, others theorize that the PNP had sent the gunmen to shoot up Marley's home, knowing that the JLP supporters would be blamed. This would sink the people's support of the JLP party, and surely they would lose the election. Seems convoluted, but to some, it made perfect sense. Either way, Manley's party won the election and remained in power. Still, the violence continued. Later reports would suggest that America's CIA was backing Siaga in order to quash the threatened alliance between Manley and Communist Russia and Cuba. Manley had already held meetings with Fidel Castro, and the U.S., in the midst of the Cold War at the time, was worried about Jamaica becoming the next Cuba. The CIA, it was alleged, was providing weapons to arm the pro-JLP street soldiers. In London, Bob Marley was at work on his new album, titled appropriately Exodus, released in 1977. Hit singles from the album included One Love and Jamming, and remained on the top of the UK charts for a full year. In 1978, Bob Marley and the Whalers embarked on a European tour. Bob Marley was now a global rock star who brought reggae music to mainstream audiences, something no one thought could ever be done. After his near-death experience, Marley immersed himself even more in the Rastafarian religion and spirituality. Claudie Maesop, who had grown up with Bob Marley in Trenchtown and was his longtime friend, had been associated with the JLP in the gang wars. He was arrested and placed into prison at the same time as the PNP-backed gang associate Bucky Marshall. The two were made to share a cell. Instead of killing one another, they began to talk and ultimately agreed to work towards a truce and end the gang wars that had been plaguing their city for far too long. Both had lost friends and relatives to the street violence and decided that they'd had enough. When Claudie was released from prison, he traveled to London to urge his old friend Bob Marley to return to Jamaica to help end the fighting and unify the people. Marley was wary, but he trusted his friend Claudie, so he agreed to come home to headline a concert for peace. Called the One Love Peace Concert, it was scheduled for April 22, 1978, at the National Stadium in Kingston. Sixteen of the biggest names in reggae music were invited to take part in the all-day concert. Peter Tosh, Marley's old bandmate, was a featured performer. Tosh spent a good portion of his hour-long set berating the Jamaican government and its politicians for the problems in his country. Bob Marley and the Whalers took the stage last, beginning their set at 2 a.m. Marley took a different tact, 
using his time in front of the audience to highlight his music as a conduit for spiritual healing and peace. He opened with Lion of Judah and Natural Mystic, and later launched into his song Positive Vibration. At times, he broke out into frenzied dancing as a spiritual expression of the music and lyrics he was sharing with his audience. In the middle of performing jamming, Marley stopped singing and called Michael Manley and Edward Siaga, the rival political party leaders, up to the stage. Saying he wanted the men to shake hands, he sang, We're gonna meet them right. We gots to unite before jumping and spinning, immersed in the music and the goal of peace. Just as the moment Marley jumped up into the air, a huge bolt of lightning flashed across the sky, directly over him, as thunder roared. The audience gasped, convinced that they'd experienced a sign from the Most High, that Jamaica must return to peace and truly work towards one love. Marley responded by dancing exuberantly, as if in a trance, for a few more moments. The stage lights were turned up, and Manley and Siaga came up on stage. Marley joyfully hugged both men and placed himself in the middle of the two before clasping their hands together in a handshake. He then raised their two hands above him, still clasped together with his, as he placed his other hand out to the audience, praying a blessing over them all. It was a powerful moment. Music producer and friend of Bob Marley, Tommy Cohen, describes it in the documentary film Who Shot the Sheriff this way. That was the moment Bob went from showman to shaman. Was that the end of the Civil War and the moment peace returned to Jamaica? Unfortunately not. The bloodshed continued between the warring gangs, and ironically, it was later reported that more guns may have been smuggled into the country, hidden in crates that were shipped in carrying audio equipment for the One Love concert. Claudie Massop and Bucky Marshall both became casualties of the political wars, killed by rival gang members within two years after calling for a truce. Had a truce been honored, gang members would have had to give up the power they had in the streets, and that just would not do. Those who were actually doing the killing and being killed were controlled by the money and the little power bestowed upon them by the true powers that be, the politicians. So the fighting and killing continued, and in 1980, the JLP returned to power when Edward Siaga was elected prime minister. Bob Marley, still in exile, now focused his energy on the homeland, making his first trip to Africa to visit Kenya and Ethiopia in 1978. He released his 11th studio album, Survival, in 1979. His new songs were calls to end the oppression in Africa. The band was invited to play at the independent ceremony for the new nation of Zimbabwe. Bob Marley and the Whalers embarked on their final European tour, playing more than 30 dates, including a concert in Milan before an audience of 120,000 people. They then began a U.S. tour in 1980. Sadly, they would only complete three shows as Marley became ill and could not continue touring. He had been diagnosed with cancer that was found in a toe after he injured it in 1977. He was advised then to have the toe amputated, but instead, he opted for a less invasive surgery and a skin graft so as not to disrupt his touring schedule at that time. Some would later say that Marley rejected having his toe amputated because he believed his religion forbid it as a body should remain whole until death. Others say this isn't true and that Marley had been given a prophecy early in his life that predicted his life would end at the age of 36. Because he believed this was his destiny, 
Some claim he had accepted that he only had so much time to create music, and this was his main focus. In the fall of 1980, Marley collapsed while jogging in New York's Central Park. The melanoma that began in his foot had spread throughout his body. He was taken to an oncologist at Sloan Kettering Hospital, who said Marley had, quote, more cancer in him than I've ever seen in a live human being, unquote. Marley was told he only had a few months to live and was encouraged to spend his time doing what he most loved. And what Marley most loved was playing his music. He continued to tour in the U.S., playing his final show on September 23, 1980, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He'd been in a relationship with former Miss World, Cindy Brakespear, for several years. She remembers that at the end of Marley's life, his body grew too weak to hold up his heavy dreadlocks. She, his wife Rita, and a few other women spent an evening praying with him, reading the Bible, and burning incense before cutting them off. Marley's wish was to return to Jamaica before he died, but sadly, he was too sick to travel. He died in Miami, Florida on May 11, 1981. His last words were to his son Stephen. He said, Money can't buy life. Bob Marley died without leaving a will. He was 36 years old. Bob Marley left an estate that was tangled up in the courts for years. Bob and Rita remained legally married until the end of his life, although Bob had been providing financially for several more women who'd borne him children over the years. Because he left no will, Jamaican law entitled his lawful wife, Rita, to receive 10% of his estate and his personal possessions, and 50% of all the money generated by his estate during her lifetime. The balance would be divided among his, by most counts, 12 children. Soon after his death, over $13 million went missing from Bob's estate. Later, it was discovered that Marley's former lawyer and accountant had persuaded Rita Marley to sign some backdated stock transfer documents with her husband's signature. Throughout his life, Bob had allowed Rita to forge his signature on many documents, once telling his manager that she'd learned to sign his name better than he could. The documents Rita signed, unknown to her, transferred Marley's songwriting royalties and publishing rights to various bank accounts in the British Virgin Islands. To get the money back, the family had to file a lawsuit and endure a long legal battle. In 1989, Marley's last producer, Chris Blackwell, bought Marley's entire estate from the Jamaican government for less than $9 million. This gave him the rights to all of Marley's recordings, his song catalog, and all future royalties. However, he then transferred all these earnings to Bob Marley's children. Okay, so I told you earlier I would endeavor to list all of Bob Marley's children for you. I had to put together a whole diagram, but I think I got it all correct. Sharon Marley Prendergast was born in 1964 and was the biological daughter of Rita Marley. She was adopted by Bob after they married. Sharon became a recording artist and was a member of the family band, Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. Sadella Marley, named after Bob's mother, was born in 1967 to Bob and Rita. She performed for a time with the Melody Makers before becoming a fashion designer. David Nesta Ziggy Marley was born in 1968 to Bob and Rita and is also a recording artist and musician. He founded the band Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. He had also played with the Whalers after his father's death. Stephen Marley was born in 1972 to Bob and Rita. 
He is a producer and a musician, and was also a member of the Melody Makers, as well as a solo artist. He is an eight-time Grammy Award winner. Robert Marley was born in 1972, within weeks of Stephen. His mother is Pat Lucille Williams. He has remained out of the public eye. Rohan Anthony Marley was born in 1972. His mother was Janet Hunt, and he was raised by Bob and Rita from the time he was four years old. He played football as a linebacker for the University of Miami before playing for the Canadian League. He is an entrepreneur and co-founded Marley Coffee and House of Marley Eco-Friendly Headphones, among other businesses. He is married to Lauren Hill, actress and former lead singer of the Fugees. Karen Marley was born in 1973. Her mother was Janet Bowen. She has also stayed out of the public eye. Stephanie Marley was born in 1974 to Rita and a man whom she had an affair with, but she is not named. Stephanie was adopted by Bob and raised as his own daughter. She is involved in the family business holdings and is the director of the Marley Resort and Spa in Nassau. Julian Ricardo Marley was born in 1975. His mother is Lucy Pounder. He is also a musician and has performed with his siblings as well as being a solo artist. He is also a Grammy Award winner. Kaimani Marley was born in 1976. His mother is Anita Belnavis, a table tennis champion. He has produced records with rap artists and has also acted in a number of Jamaican films. Damien Marley was born in 1978 to Bob and Cindy Breakspear. He is a jazz musician and reggae artist. He has won three Grammy Awards and has recorded with many artists, including Mick Jagger and Nas. So that's 11 children, nine biological and two adopted. But there's at least one more. Makita Marley never met her father. She was born just weeks after his death. Her mother was Yvette Crichton from Miami. She did not grow up around her numerous half-siblings and lives in the Philadelphia area. But hold on, there's one more. Reportedly, Bob Marley fathered a child when he was just 16 years old, years before meeting his wife, Rita. Imani Carol Marley was born in 1963. Her mother is Cheryl Murray from Kingston. So she would be Bob Marley's firstborn child. Bob Marley left behind many beautiful and talented children, as well as a legacy in music. His music remains legendary, and his album, titled Legend, released in 1984. It is a greatest hits compilation and is the best-selling reggae record of all time, selling an estimated 28 million copies globally. It was ranked at number 46 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. The Marley family founded the Bob Marley Foundation in his honor. The foundation provides philanthropic support for programs that focus on culture, spirituality, social justice and equality, and music. The Bob Marley Foundation supports such charities as the Garden of Eden Foundation to empower and educate youth, the Rita Marley Foundation that works to alleviate poverty in developing countries, and Rise Up, a program that supports initiatives in Jamaica from environmental programs to advocating for diversity in the cannabis industry. You can find out more about these programs and more at bobmarley.com. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next week, I'll continue Rocktober, but since it's almost Halloween, my favorite holiday, 
The next episode will still be about musicians, but with a haunted twist. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Instagram and Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.